Beats and Vibes Podcast is the perfect wrestling podcast. There's a guy named Hal and there's Danielle and this guy Tides and Fights, the wrestling podcast. Talk now. We're talking wrestling. See, you you think that's Glow Song. I think that's Charles Barkley on the NBA highlights. That's what it really is. That's Charles Barkley's song. 76ers? That's right. Good old oh. Chuck was breaking down the walls of heartache back in the mid to late 80s. Oh, what a great guy. Welcome to Tights and Fights, the show that discusses wrestling with the sincerity and hilarity that it deserves. I'm... Howl up a minute, players, Lublin. <laughs> and I'm joined today. We're going to do a 900-man tag match for the fellow members of the Nation of Conversation. We've got Get This Hair, Danielle Radford. It's lovely. It's so good. That's real good. That's a real good one. And Buff Rapwell, Mike Eagle. Oh, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> my shirt's a little tight today. Your shirt is a little tight today, <laughs> little my tight. friend. Tight shirt, loose pants. Mm-hmm. Not, a, not, a, not a care in the world. And our special guest, he's an author, a wrestling trainer, semi-retired wrestler, and the founder of the independent promotion Shikara, Mike Quackenbush. Welcome. Why, thank you. Now, Mike, for our listeners, many of whom are familiar with your work, but some of whom may be new to you, uh, give us us sort of a rundown of your career. Tell us about your story in pro wrestling. Oh, it's all been fairly dreadful. I don't mind telling you. Oh, no. Probably after this podcast, that's it. Like, this is really the zenith for me. I made it to tights and fights, and I'm out. I didn't get the fun nickname like everybody else gets at the beginning. I feel a little bit jilted over that. But after all these episodes of listening, I just kept thinking, what's he going to come up with? Oh. Yeah, AKAs are only for those of us who could never go into the ring. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine, guys. It's fine. <laughs> we, you know, we can just talk about whatever you want. Um, yeah, the, the sad reality is uh, I'm in my 25th year in professional wrestling. Congratulations. And wow. this is what I have made of my adult life. Uh, and and I've watched, if you haven't seen some of the videos of, of uh, Mike speaking, not only... Uh, stuff in the ring, but uh, his stuff at Ignite in Philly, my hometown. Um, but you talk a little bit about how wrestling sort of entranced you uh, when you were younger. But I, I want to hear a little bit more about that for our audience and then how you got involved and, and just sort of uh, what your journey's been like going from fan to to wrestler. You you run a promotion. You're a trainer. You're a speaker, an educator. I, I mean, I, we're going to get into all of it, but just give us sort of a, a bird's eye view. Well, I was a kid of the 80s. So the nationalization boom with the first WrestleMania and then like the advent of the rock and wrestling connection and Hulkamania and that first huge wave of pro wrestling kind of existing in the popular zeitgeist, which is thanks to Alice Cooper and it's thanks to Cindy Lauper and it's thanks to Mr. T and it's thanks to the brilliance of Vince McMahon. Um, Every kid of the 80s, like, it was inescapable. And, and I remember when Hulk Hogan fought the Ultimate Warrior in the main event of WrestleMania. And that was the first that I really saw it. And I thought, well, what is it that has everyone so obsessed? What is it about this that makes it so compelling? And, and quite frankly, watching that match, I thought, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Like, I just don't get it. <laughs> uh, and I don't know how much of that match any of you happen to remember, 
but there's like a really elongated test of strength it was spot really long. yeah where hulk hogan's just resting his bald head in the crotch of the ultimate warrior um, <laughs> and it really wasn't in terms of the the physicality of it until i saw jushin thunder liger yeah. that i really saw somebody who was dynamic but also like there were enough points on that you know if you make that venn diagram between comic book tropes and pro wrestling mm. jushin thunder liger's really in the sweet spot mm. And for all intents and purposes, it might as well have been an entirely different medium. That seemed so desperately different from suntan Hulk Hogan resting his sweaty bald head in the Warriors' crotch for six minutes while the crowd went mild. Can you just grab that so, again really slowly? It's, it's, doing, it's doing something for me. I'm going to do a charcoal of it. Go ahead. Okay. So, <laughs> you could have done a breast rubbing. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I, I would wager to say that your arcs may be similar depending on how insatiable your appetite was at the height of your fandom. It just took over every corner of my life. Let's talk about Chikara. For people who are unfamiliar, how would you describe it to them? It's the Marvel Cinematic Universe realized as a pro wrestling company. Mm. Yeah, that's why I like it so much. It's mm. great. Yeah. <laughs> it is an expression of my love of comic books and at different times, depending on, you know, what's really kind of captured my imagination, I think if you go back and watch through the 19 seasons of Chikara, there's one or two that feel a whole lot like Lost. You know, there's a season or two in there that maybe feels a little bit like the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. Mm -hmm. um, there's definitely at least a full half season that is overtly meant as a love letter to Watchmen. Mm. So... I like to pull from those types of elements because and if you've heard me speak about pro wrestling, you know this is like a mantra of mine. Wrestling is just beginning to realize its potential as a storytelling medium. And, of course, you know, it's hard not to look at, like, Lucha Underground who have, you know, a half-million-dollar budget per episode or whatever it is that they're working with over there and think, man, I was making that 10 years before you existed. If I could just get some of that sweet, sweet money, we <laughs> would have done our secret wars by now. Like, we, we would have so done our crisis on Infinite Earths. We just didn't have the budget to do it. Nevertheless, what's going on right now in wrestling speaks to this is people are increasingly aware, due in large part to the Internet, they are aware that, Saying they are a wrestling fan, but only watching WWF is like saying you're a music fan, but only listening to the band U2. Mm. <laughs> and and there, there are people like that. If the only thing you know is WWE, boy, man, you might want to start listening to some other bands because there's that period of time right where you grew up listening to Top 40 Radio because that's what your parents play and it's the easiest to find on the dial. That signal comes in the strongest and it's the easiest to find. But by the time you're a fully formed wrestling fan, chances are you might listen to a little jazz or you may occasionally dabble in punk. And every once and again, you go out to see an alternative music show and you're not just listening to you 2 anymore. And if the kind of wrestling you like happens to be, you know, what Vince McMahon churns out of his sausage factory, which admittedly is glossy, incredibly well produced and features some amazing men and women, then great. Like there's a place to go to hype and commiserate about whatever the most recent hour of TV they cranked at might be. If you like your wrestling with a heavier fantasy, science fiction, or mythology bent to it, right, there there are alternatives for you like that. If you like more of a blood and guts product in the same way, right, like you could probably find a subreddit that is like exactly for mumble rap. Hmm. And the digital centricity of that will only, I think, increase as time goes on. So in music, if you talk about the the 
paradigm or dynamic t- between mainstream and alternative kind of niche uh, elements. There's kind of something cyclical that happens that people kind of get sick of the mainstream and then like a new energy, one of these niche things emerges and kind of becomes mainstream. Hmm. Uh, in the sense of wrestling, specifically with the superhero fantasy element that you bring to it, do you feel close to a moment like that happening where that sort of, where, where wrestling with those sorts of values could, could penetrate the mainstream? Well, uh, I don't mean to answer that question with a question, but I think in part it depends on your perception of Lucha Underground. Mm-hmm. Um, like, how how mainstream do you feel they are? My, my gut tells me that an average wrestling fan might say, I think I've heard of that, but could they even name the network where you go to watch them? Hi, I talk could, about this every week, and the two people that I'm in this room with could not name very much about yeah, no, I've, I've tried Lucha it. Underground. I could tell you what network it was. It's Netflix, but it was El Rey. Is it not El right. Rey anymore? Yeah. I don't know if they're still on El Rey now or if they've moved completely to Netflix. Look, we did it. <laughs> I'm very look, I'm the most educated, ignorant person <laughs> you will find. But I but I think I I take your point hundred percent. Mm-hmm. And I do think that the WWE as a corporate entity will only increase the chasm between themselves and whoever imagines themselves to be number two. Um they just have such, uh, I mean, one, in terms of their financial assets, they can afford to just make up another XFL anytime they want, mm-hmm. light giant mountains of money on fire and be fine. Whereas most other wrestling companies could never, you know, imagine gambling something like that and then think they're going to come out unscathed on the other end. So it speaks a little bit to their financial dominance in the field. Um, they've also done such a great job of just revising history to make it seem as if they win every battle, right? And mm-hmm. victors write the history books. Um, you know, there's no more, I think, uh, top of mind for me right now, um, having had the chance on occasion to share a locker room with Mae Young, but also realizing how we would never have had a Mae Young or any other really influential female wrestling figure if not for Mildred Burke, the mother of all female pro wrestling. To hear the WWE's accounting of wrestling history, you would think Mildred Burke does not exist. Right. She, right. she is the first. She is the trailblazer. Um, but because politically she was on the opposite side of the fence from the fabulous Moolah and Moolah's politics align with the McMahon families, Mildred Burke's significance has been neatly erased, uh, you know, like a retcon in DC Comics from the continuity, which is kind of like a, uh, a frightening prospect. But... That's not to say that you cannot be viable at the level that Lucha Underground is. Or uh, even though they, too, are corporate wrestling, you may know, of course, like Ring of Honor is owned by Sinclair Broadcasting, a gigantic media conglomerate. Um, They are not independent wrestling. I think sometimes people maybe love to misreport that sort of thing. But, yeah, the people under high dollar figure contracts to them, the Cody Rhodeses and the Young Bucks and all those guys, they're not independent. They work for a giant, (laughs) giant multi-million, if not billion dollar conglomerate. That, too, is like a certain flavor of corporate wrestling. And yet people, I think, are increasingly aware that there are other flavors out there and they're not going to be content with just the color swapped ropes of 205 Live. You know, that's kind of like the difference between buying vanilla ice cream and vanilla bean. Like, oh, so the ropes are yellow on Wednesday nights, but it's still made by all the same corporate masters. No doubt some people are fooled by that or they're sated by that really narrow differentiation in flavor. But I also think there is a growing audience that wants something more. They want to see the art form progress as opposed to repeat the same tropes that have become familiar since the nationalization in the mid-80s. But it, it, it seems as if they are also 
nurturing that want for a different flavor using NXT, right? Because as much as the difference between 205 Live and Raw can be mostly boiled down to a rope color change, the aesthetic and the storytelling and the lore in NXT seems to come from a place more akin to a Chikara than than maybe mm-hmm. to a Raw. Do you do you get that a sense of that as well? Yes, and I think it can be attributed to this. There is a much smaller writing staff at NXT, which is some sometimes, like for example, um, I was very fortunate two and a half years ago to spend a week at the Performance Center with the WWE, and I got to work behind the scenes with them. I got to produce some NXT. I had a, a wonderful experience learning how they do what they do and why they do what they do, which I think is often like the great mystery. Even when I listen sometimes to tights and fights, right? There's oftentimes that thought process of like, why are they doing this with this girl? Why are they choosing this guy over that guy? And yet when I was there in the mix, listening to the coaches and listening to them make executive decisions, I thought to myself, one, am I allowed to be in this meeting? Should I go go get a smoothie while you discuss if you're going to fire this person? Um, But it also made me realize once you understand what their priorities are, look, oh, of course, it's perfectly obvious now that I understand what your priorities are in in the way that you're casting your TV show. Like it makes perfect sense. Um, I I found all of that very eye opening. But when and and, uh, some friends of mine have spent time on the main writing team for WWE, when you're in a room with 25 other people, all of whom are competing to have their ideas be heard, and it really depends on what side of the bed Vince McMahon woke up on that day, which way the winds will blow. Um, there was this constant shifting of direction and it leads to a certain like narrative instability that what was done on Monday might be irrelevant by Sunday night's pay-per-view. I don't know what writers really flourish under those circumstances and the rate at which WWE writers burn out and get replaced, it would seem to indicate not many do. Mm -hmm. The smaller, more tight writing staff on NXT, I think, allows for tighter storytelling and a better mind for continuity, which by the time you get to Raw and SmackDown and 20, 24 or 28 writers have all these segments divided up between them. Well, what's to make writer three coordinate with writer 11 or double check was this the same story we did a year ago before any of you were hired? And you can see the kind of minefield they would have to navigate in order to put something out that seems anywhere even remotely close to intelligent storytelling. Mm-hmm. I want to ask a very quick question along no, these I lines. I only do long-winded ones. <laughs> Great. Long-winded. I have a 900-part question for you. Let's an- do it. Another theory I have. I think that fans today have a sense of entitlement that did not exist before people really were peering backstage on a larger scale. That certainly one of the things the internet has done is is attempted to lift the veil on the industry. Mm-hmm. Really, there's no way that fans know how, to what extent the veil is actually lifted outside of, we know that these are athletes, performers who are playing parts, but it feels to me that, that now fans feel like, well, this is what the storyline should be. And I don't like that this isn't happening. And so you get crowds like the one in Pittsburgh who decided to hijack the show and not really recognize what was going on in favor of sort of putting themselves over. I have this thought every once in a while that, that the new way that any company can sort of maintain the veil is to sort of jerk those people along a little bit. <laughs> So that it's instead of it being, I don't like the good guy, I don't like the bad guy, it's I don't like this person that they keep 
either pushing it down my throat or I don't like that this person I like never wins and I think that they should because they're good. So a company can make more money by exploiting that and making you wait for the win or wait for the loss than uh, in the same way that, that traditionally you'd have a good guy chase a bad guy or or a monster whose streak needs to be toppled. Is, is that make any sense and is that is there do you think there's any credence to that how you <laughs> ignorant slut um, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I think there's a lot of credence to that um i think you could you could look at it in a sense as uh, are the fans more entitled or is it that they just have higher and higher expectations mm -hmm. so all other types of serialized storytelling have evolved so greatly uh, over the course of the last two to three decades, um, there was a time where a program, even just to kind of go back to what I think of as, as sparking like a lot of modern high end drama type stuff. There was a time when a Buffy the Vampire Slayer would have never made it onto TV. Mm. There is sure. a time when a Sopranos or a Friday Night Lights or a Lost would have never made it on TV. And if not for some of those, we never would have gotten to Breaking Bad. We never would have gotten to some of these if the art form was not continually pushed forward. But with the exception of the oft-discussed 83 weeks when WCW was running the table, we have always had one guy dictating the vision. And because of how dominant they are, it's as if it's the vision for the whole industry. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I have worked for independent companies where the only thing they really want to be is diet WWE. You know, they, they'll never have the production values. They will never have all the TV stars that WWE does. But if they can get by on, you know, just getting whoever was the most recently released WWE star to make an appearance at XYZ Championship Wrestling, like that is as close to reaching for the stars as they're ever going to get. I think there is dissatisfaction on the part of fans who are more knowledgeable now than ever before. And yet the art form has not advanced commensurate with the way in which they have now increased their overall awareness, their knowledgeability. Fans are so much more knowledgeable about everything that's going on. And sometimes, especially in the case of the WWE, what they may find themselves up against is that the real life drama that's going on, like, you know, when the business between John Cena and, and the one Bella twin ended up on every, hmm. you know, tabloid, like, are they together? Are they not together? People found that far more compelling than any storyline WWE writers had come up with that year. Um, th that story was everywhere. Every time I opened up my Yahoo feed to see what the new news was, <laughs> that was there. Um, there's no storyline that they've done that has garnered that type of attention. And when the real behind the scenes drama is more compelling than what your TV product is, boy, you've got a real problem on your hands. And I don't think that problem is the fan base. I completely agree. We are going to chat more with Mike Quackenbush right here on Tights and Fights. Uh, we're going to take That's a what you think. That's what we think. <laughs> he, might, yeah. he might disappear. There could be a smoke bomb being thrown <laughs> over Skype. Nobody knows. Uh, if you have That's any thoughts on what we've been talking about, let us know about them at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Tights Fights and at Tights Fights on Twitter and Instagram. More Mike Quackenbush coming up after the break on Tights and Fights. Kardashians. Michael Cohen. Hashtags. Clickbait. Memes. Oh. <laughs> Debunking. Rebunking. <laughs> Regular sized bunking. 
McBoaty, McBoatface. Do any of these words make sense to you? Then maybe Trends Like These is the podcast you should be listening to. We put an episode every week on MaximumFun.org. Hosted by me, Travis McRoy. And me, Courtney Enlow. And me, Brent Black. Trends Like These on MaximumFun.org. Because with Trends Like These, who needs any memes? Ah? Ah? <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> Welcome back to Tights and Fights. I'm Hal Loveland. I'm joined today by... Daniel Radford. And... Michael Eager. And... Quackenbush. Yes, of course. You got it right. You got it right. Uh, I want to talk... Uh, we're going to talk to you a little bit about the uh, current WWE product, because it's sort of big and out there, but I want to talk to you about training first. Mm-hmm. How long have you been training wrestlers now? I started training people in the year 2000, but I didn't open my own wrestling school until January of 2002. Okay, and you, you've some of the people who you've trained that our, our audience would be familiar with would include uh, Drew Gulak, Ruby Riot, and uh, Cesaro. Mm-hmm. Can you see early on in somebody the, what their ceiling is going to be, and how do you know? Um, certainly not what their ceiling would be, but there are things you can tell immediately about someone. Like, what is their level of dedication, mm-hmm. and how much of how much natural ability do they bring to the table? Because some people will simply have to work much, much harder than uh, somebody else. When I first met Cesaro, I was teaching in Zurich, Switzerland, in two thousand three. And if you saw him then and saw him now, you wouldn't even realize they're the same human being. Mm. He had a very long development period to transform his body to get to a place where cosmetically he fit the mold for what WWE hires. Mm -hmm. In the ring, is he a vastly different wrestler than he was back then? I don't know about vastly. He throws European uppercuts with the exact same precision he did the day I met him. But... When somebody has a, a very special skill, like they have a talent or something that really makes them stand out. And for some, it might just be the way they walk to the ring. For mm. some, it might be the way that they emote with their face and their voice and their body. With some, it might be the moves that they choose. Some, it might be the costuming. Um, like to give you an example, right? I think one that's easy to wrap your head around. Asuka makes all of her own gear. Mm-hmm. Asuka's oh, gear is amazing. exceptionally eye-catching. Yeah. And between the fact that she has remarkable stage presence and gorgeous costuming, even if you don't know what her wrestling is like, you might glance at her and think, that girl, she's a star. There's something about her. Sometimes there is just that one thing. Sometimes it's as simple as the music choice. What is it about that song that makes me want to cheer for that person? Um, And not all of those things are immediately identifiable, and some of them are an evolution. Like, Although I rarely wrestle these days, the gear that I have now, which was designed for me by Closet Champion, is the closest to like what I think my real superhero gear might look like mm-hmm. that I've ever been able to realize. I had designers who would make gear for me down in Mexico, I had all over the world, and I would nudge the ball a little closer each time to what I thought was like an authentic expression of me. And only now, here I am 25 years deep, and I feel like this is a skin I'm really comfortable in, but that was a long evolution. I have a question for you. It's going to be kind of a, a, a derailment, but based on your experience. Oh, these are the best kind. Yeah. <laughs> and values. I'm really interested in your answer. Um, like, in your opinion, like, who are, like, maybe the top two or three greatest of all time? 
Well, that's a fascinating question you've asked, Mike, and it boils down to the criteria. Mm -hmm. If we were going to talk about who is the most influential, this guy or these guys changed the game, that their moment on stage forever sent wrestling into a new direction. Among them have to be the series of matches Tiger Mask and Dynamite Kid had from 1981 to 1983. Hmm. They revolutionized junior heavyweight wrestling. Junior heavyweight wrestling went from being just small heavyweights to a style unto itself. It has its own energy. It has an aesthetic to it that it never did before. They make beautiful, beautiful matches together for that three-year period. Those are two guys I think that you can point at. I think you can look at both the Crush Gals in All Japan Women's, and then just a few years later, the arrival of Manami Toyota. Uh, Manami Toyota is really one who makes, a, I think, a strong statement about do not look at women's wrestling, or as it's called in Japan, Joshi, as like a second-class pursuit because we will wrestle as hard and on many nights much harder than the men. We will be more innovative. We will bring greater pageantry. When you see their ring costumes, uh, they just have there's such gorgeous, immense pageantry to what they surround these feats of athleticism with. And then stories that really they, they, they bring you to tears. I'm thinking specifically about Toyota having to beat her own tag team partner and shave her head as they're both crying in the ring. Wow. They really brought an emotional quotient to the storytelling that people didn't look at Joshi that way before. Joshi used to be about cute Japanese girls singing J-pop songs, not in the era that Toyota is the trailblazer for. And then uh, coming across the ocean, but also at a similar time period, 1995 to 1996, Rey Mysterio Jr. is one of those guys who really opens the imagination both of wrestling fans but of other wrestlers to this is what Lucha Libre could be like Mm. if we were willing to give it a chance and let it out of its box. Do not think of this as living just here in Mexico and don't think of it as such a rigid style that you, even though you might be playing, you know, bass and keyboards and drums in a rock band, you know what? You can take those same three instruments and play jazz Mm -hmm. and let's see what else we can do. Um, And I think there is like a creative explosion that Rey Mysterio Jr. ushers in. So if we chose that as the criteria, those are some people that jump to mind. Well, it's a real, it's a, it's a generic question, but I'm glad I asked it because I'm <laughs> going to look up everything other than Rey Mysterio as soon as we leave this booth. Oh, I can. Yeah, Man- Manami <laughs> Toyota is uh, real good. Yeah, I have I, no idea. I stay uh, recommending 90s Joshi. I will send you things. Please do. I will send you all. I was fortunate enough, uh, just a weird aside, um, I was fortunate enough, my company, Chikara, was the first to bring Manami Toyota to the United States. Um, This happens about eight years ago. And uh, at Chikara, we've always believed that there are equal rights and equal fights. There is no division by gender or by weight class. Between bells, we are all just wrestlers. When Manami Toyota found out there was the opportunity to wrestle men, she couldn't believe it. There was nothing like that in Japan at the time, uh, you've started to see a little bit of that commingling going on now, especially in groups like DDT that are a little more experimental. But I remember how zealous she was for that opportunity. And I remember feeling a great swell of pride. There, there's a match, you can find it on our proprietary service, Chikaratopia.com, where I get to team with Manami Toyota against Cesaro and uh, Sarah Del Rey, who is now mm. Sarah Amato, the number two at the Performance Center down for the WWE in part because I knew how much that meant to Toyota and in turn, how much she means to me. That's amazing. Wow, That's fantastic. Touching a little bit more on your training, 
what sort of things do you like to focus on when you begin training with somebody? Is it is it the same for everyone at the start, or do you start identifying strengths and weaknesses right away, and and start start tailoring to individuals? No, I don't think that tailorization, the customization, doesn't really start to happen until they get past some of the intermediate level classes. So they're going to spend some time in the beginner level. They're going to spend some time in the intermediate. And that's usually when, they, sadly, they start to weed themselves out. The dropout rate at pro wrestling schools is incredibly high. Oh, if sure. I start a class of 10, a year from now, I'll have one of them left. A lot of times it's because they come in with, you know, like a really dangerous misimpression. None is more toxic than, oh, wrestling is fake. And once you teach me the trick, it's safe, right? It's like a magic trick. And I know that I won't be hurt. So there are people who come in and immediately realize my body cannot handle this, you know, like I'm out. There are people who don't realize the level of sacrifice and they're out. They don't realize the way in which it will corrupt your other professional dealings, your personal life and relationships, and they're not willing to pay that price and they're out. But after they sort of go through that whole baptism by fire, if they're still sticking around at that point, I feel like, all right, let's really look at what they're doing here. They have the mechanics, but they don't understand the performative skills right. or they don't understand the structural skills. They might know exactly how to put on a hammerlock or they might know how to execute a moonsault, but they don't understand the why and they don't have a sense of timing or cadence. How can I develop these skills so that by the time they get out there, what they're enacting on stage is not effectively the same thing I could make in a video game by smashing the buttons. Hmm. Sounds exactly like stand-up comedy. Well, a lot of my training philosophy and system is taken directly from improv. I have hundreds and hundreds of hours of improv training. And I thought the hierarchy that the UCB uses at their improv schools of like beginner 101, 201, 301, et cetera, mm -hmm. was something that I could mold the Wrestle Factory after. And uh, we've had tremendous success using that kind of tiered schooling system. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the WWE Performance Center, a little bit about the time you spent there, and and I'd love some of your views on sort of their current project or product rather, and how where you are of it. But g going there uh, in 2016, w who were some of the people that you worked with that our audience would recognize, and and w how crazy are their facilities? The facility is just gorgeous. It's a state-of-the-art, seven-ring, perfectly temperature-controlled facility with separate dressing rooms and showers. And there's a room where there are cameras 360 degrees around you where you can watch your promos back from any conceivable angle to see what your posture is like, your delivery. Um, it's like something out of pro wrestling science fiction, what they've built there. <laughs> and um, I, I, before I went down, I was talking to a friend of mine who used to be better known as Evan Bourne, uh, now most commonly referred to as Matt Seidel, which was his name before his WWE run as well. And I said, what should I expect when I get down there? And he, he shook his head and smiled and said, Mike, we are meant to learn how to wrestle in dirty garages, not that place. Um, so there is a certain sterility to it, which as a germaphobe, I appreciate. But I understand that People who feel that way about it maybe don't fully understand what some of their priorities are. And I will do my best to speak on behalf of, of a company that I worked for for one week. Right? Like, <laughs> they, they brought me down there as a freelancer. I was a coach for four or five days. I got to be an agent and a producer. And it was very flattering to be offered a job to be a full-time coach down there. But moving to Orlando is just not in my future, not now anyway. I think what people overlook is that performance center in many ways is like – a homogenization plant. 
People come from all over the world, uh, wherever the authors of pain are from, wherever Shinsuke Nakamura is from, wherever, you know, their latest hiring initiative, right? We got to hire a bunch of kids from China. They're coming from China. We got to hire a bunch of kids from the Middle East. They're coming from the Middle East. Whatever's going on, they're pulling them all in. Some of them have pro wrestling backgrounds. Many of them do not. And they must go through this homogenization process where they learn WWE television style, which is not Chikara style. It is not PWG style. It's not New Japan style. It's not CMLL. It's WWE television style. And the reason for that is safety. Mm. When they all speak the same language, physically, I mean, there are less chances for injury. That means less time at home when they're paying people on their contracts, but they're not able to perform. It creates all kinds of disruptions. You know, if they have a plan for the pay-per-view and they create billboard ads, graphics, they've got ads out and somebody gets hurt, well, now the graphics team is up all night. Now all those ads we bought are no longer any good. Mm. There's a domino effect that those injuries have. But if everyone roughly speaks that same language, WWE television pro wrestling, there is less likelihood of injury. And once I understood that priority, I thought, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. I also was fortunate enough to oversee one of their tryout camps, and that was one of many, many moments where I was stunned that they allowed me to be part of that process. While I was there, and uh, this is the thing I get asked about more than anything when I teach seminars, what is the WWE looking for when they hire? The tryout camp I observed, we were told that the four priorities were, number one priority is telegenic appearance. Wow. Do they have a good look for television? Mm. Number two priority at this trial camp was age. They favored people 31 and younger, heaviest. Over 35 was not even considered. Mm. The third thing they were looking for, their number three priority was coachability. Could I give a directive and then have it replicated in the ring the way that we asked for it? Or are they incapable of taking coaching direction, following notes? Would you care to guess what the least valuable thing was? Wrestling ability? Exactly. And they have tremendous faith in this state-of-the-art facility of theirs to take someone. When I was down there, Mandy Rose was fairly new. And she had come, I believe, from like high-end bikini competition. She, other than The Rock, couldn't name a professional wrestler when she started down there. And yet they have transformed her into a great performer. And she gets better all the time. When I was down there, I was lucky enough that um, – there was a crew of kids being groomed to be pulled up to TV, like the villains I got to spend time with, mm -hmm. um, with the revival, with Alexa Bliss, uh, and help them tweak little parts of their game right before they went up. And then likewise, I got to spend time, uh, you know, w whether it was with the Mandy Roses or it was with the, uh, the, the Gables and the Jordans and those guys, um, just developing different aspects of their game. So all of that was very, very rewarding. And even when I see something as minor as, uh, like, that's the entrance Mandy Rose and I came up with one day at the Performance Center, and there it is on TV. Mm. That, that seems like such an insignificant triviality, and, and yet to be quite honest about it, I get a sense of validation when I see that on my TV screen. Yeah, of course. Of mm. course you do. So since you talk about having WWE on your TV screen, to what extent do you consume the products that they're putting out, and they put out a ton of stuff, um, and who, who do you see right now that you think is doing exceptional work, even if it's within that system? 
Well, most of what, what I watch is, you know, if a friend or a protege or an acquaintance specifically asks me to watch a segment that they're on for my feedback, mm-hmm. um, you know, would you watch would you watch this promo? I felt like it did not connect with the audience. Can you help me with this? Or, you know, something like that, a very specific um, performance need or want that they're after. And sometimes it's as simple as, you know, hey, look, everybody backstage is always so busy scrambling after 205 Live. No one gives me any real feedback. They just give me fluff. Would you watch this match that I just had and give it to me straight? Like, what what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? How do I start course correcting for that point on the horizon to be doing my best work? So a lot of times I, I really pay attention mostly with that sort of directive where I'm watching it with my analytical goggles and not with my fan goggles. Still, it is important that I watch bits and pieces of everything. You've got to be able, as I often preach during my seminars, you got to know enough about everything to be dangerous in any conversation. Mm-hmm. If you're standing backstage at a wrestling show and everybody's standing around talking about what are the current standings in the G1 climax for New Japan, you better be able to stand there and be part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's a networking opportunity you're missing out on. Maybe there's somebody in there that's going to become your new best friend or an opportunity lying in wait if you would just step up and be part of the conversation. Uh, you've got to see enough, know enough, and be knowledgeable enough to be dangerous in any conversation. Ooh, mm. I like that. Right? Conversation <laughs> danger. I think that's a new podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wonder if somebody like, like Claudio, who came from the independent scene, where I assume there's also a lot of travel, if you're dedicated and working hard and making a ton of dates, what does that life look like? And, and how important is it to have that you know, if, if WWE is quote unquote the big money, and I, I don't know that it is, I'm sure that there are a lot of ways to make a very good living on the independent scene. How important is that sort of middle class sort of wrestling career to have, to have out well, there? During the years that I traveled heaviest, 1998 and 1999, mm-hmm. and in those years I maybe wrestled a maximum of 150 matches um, each year, I'm still nowhere close to what WWE performers are doing. Like if you figure in their TV dates and their house show dates and the fact that they're on five nights a week, you know, 150, they could do that standing on their head. Mm -hmm. But that meant that every Friday and Saturday and some Sundays, I was out. There is a freedom that comes with being truly independent. Um, We we probably have no better flag bearer for true independence in wrestling than Colt Cabana, Mm -hmm. um, who makes the wonderful Art of Wrestling podcast. And... He goes where he wants to go. If he decides I'm on the 11 a.m. flight and not the 6 a.m. flight, well, that's easy because he's his own travel agent. And if he decides he wants to take a booking for the NWA in China, well, then that's what Colt Cabana goes and does. But if he wakes up that morning and decides, no, I'm not going to accept that, he doesn't have to. He he does not have a corporate master that he must answer to. And I think a discussion that we will be having more and more – in the next year about pro wrestling is the schism between pro wrestling, the business, the corporate entity, the sausage factory, the television product, and pro wrestling, the art form. When you leave the real independence to go and make corporate wrestling, that art form starts to die and it becomes something else. It becomes a corporate product. You no longer, just to give you, uh, you know, some backstage information that you probably already know anyway, at the independent level, I have the freedom to craft my own match. I can choose my own movements. I can say my entrance will look like this, and I'm going to make this face, and I choose this move. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But at the WWE level, all of that is controlled by a producer or an agent. Mm-hmm. And you might say, like in the case of Cesaro, for example, he and I, we created this super cool move of his called the UFO. It has never, ever, ever been done on WWE television. And from time to time, I would ask him why. He said, anytime I've ever brought it up, I've been told no. No, not tonight, some other time. No, that's not for you. Mm. Um, so there you are. And I'm not saying I'm not I'm not trying to like vilify them. I'm saying they make a different product. Right. They make a corporate product. I understand why a lot of people aspire to go there because they will probably make the best money of their career. They will certainly enjoy the greatest notoriety. And in the case of that 98 percent of the population that can't name another wrestling organization on Earth, that to them is the only way you, quote unquote, make it. But there are other metrics for success. And those of us that really like take to heart the idea of pro wrestling as an art form, realize it is about so much more than how many zeros are in your pay-per-view royalty check or the quarter-hour Nielsen ratings that you command. Mike Quackenbush, thank you so much for joining us. It's been so much fun talking to you. Uh, Tell everybody where they can find you online, what they should be reading, looking at. I know there's some huge stuff upcoming. Tell us about it. It's true. Every year we make the biggest tournament in all of pro wrestling. It is the only one with 48 professional wrestlers in it. It's called King of Trios. And it's this Labor Day weekend. You'll see the U.S. debut of the Tokyo Joshi Pro Girls. It's the first time they will ever set foot in North America. Six of the breakout stars of the Australian independent scene are coming to the United States. The Chikara debut of Mighty Molly. The Nexus getting back together. There's so much going on at King of Trios 2018. Kingoftrios.com is probably the easiest place to stick your toe in that pool. If you're interested to find me, you'll find me at my apartment or online. I'm (laughs) at Mike Quack. Bush on Twitter. You'll find my ramblings there. My latest book, Seven Keys to Becoming a Better Performer, a book for fellow pro wrestlers, although in reality, for anyone who performs, can be found on Amazon.com. They'll send it right to your mobile device or a drone will drop it on your door if you've got that sweet, sweet Amazon Prime. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, if you've got any thoughts on what we've talked about with Mike Quackenbush, go to our episode thread at facebook.com slash group slash tightsfights. And you can keep the conversation going at tightsfights on Twitter and Instagram, too. Up next, we've got some things from the world of wrestling that you should know about. That's coming up on Tights and Fights. I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott, and we're Everything's Everything's Coming coming Up Simpsons. Simpsons. We are a Simpsons podcast on the Maximum Fun Network, and we've got some exciting news. Ooh, tell me. We are going to be doing some live podcast shows in some of our favorite cities. We're so excited, and we want to let you guys know out there in the Max Fun universe that we are coming to you. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. On Saturday, September 15th, we will be at the North Door in Austin, Texas. Yeehaw. Uh, On Saturday, December 1st, we will be at the Alamo Draft house sloan's lake in denver colorado there's no basement in the alamo Mm, we'll find out friday (laughs) december 7th we are going to be at the vera project in seattle washington oh god uh nirvana yes (laughs) okay and saturday december 8th we will be at mississippi studios in portland oregon hey matt graining lives there yeah once lived there he he still lives there in our hearts so um make sure that you mark your calendars for those dates and we will be posting the ticketing links on our twitter that is at simpsons pod and we will smell you later. Tyson Bites Podcast. Tyson Bites.
Welcome back to Tights and Fights. I'm Hal Lublin, and I'm joined today by... Danielle Radford. And... Dancing Mike Eagle. Oh, he is dancing, He's moving. He's moving and he's grooving. This week, we want to end the show by sharing some of the joy of pro wrestling with you. This is the three count. Danielle, what do you want to put over? Um, I am putting over the silliest thing that I have seen this week, and it made me laugh so hard. So, during a promo, um, there is a moment where um, it is Ronda Rousey talking to Alexa Bliss, and she's like, you can hang on to that belt as tight as you want it, um, which I actually think she does say belt. I don't remember if she says belt or championship, but she's like, you can hang on to that as, as tight as you want it. But it doesn't matter because it's coming home with me or some very... And then she drops the mic. She threw the shit out of it. But she mic. threw it and it bounces. And so a Twitter user called, which I love, Kokabushi. Oh, boy. As in C-O-K-E-I-B-U-S-H-I. Now, baby, tell me what you want to do with me. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, but yeah, so he made this fantastic... I can't even describe it. Just go... Just just go. Just go to his thing. I will retweet it tomorrow. Yeah. Or I'll link it in the thread or something so we'll y'all can see it. Because um, it is so funny and it's so silly. And I watched it five times in a row. Wonderful. Fantastic. Mike. Putting over Randy Orton's promo from this week. All of you have made your choice. And so have I. And that means that I will erase every superstar that you choose to believe in. Starting with Jeff Hardy. Piece by piece by piece. But it's not my fault. You can't put this on me. This is on each and every one of you. I want him to cut a promo on me. I want him to destroy me with words. I want him to look at me with that sloped, sunken forehead <laughs> and, and just, ugh, just. We would love Randy Orton again. Just tell me. I don't me. know if I'm at love, but I'm I definitely. I love. I love it. Ugh. I don't know if I'm at love, but I'm definitely at like. I will not fast forward this. I mean, just the shit he's saying. <laughs> it's just like, you know, it's 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 great for people who've been paying attention. No, and when you he's know? on, and, and you look, you, you know, we can talk about shit-ass Randy Orton all we want to. Uh, oh, they're all awful people. The, yeah, all, all our heroes awful are awful. They're all terrible. Yeah. But like, and we can talk about sleeping and phoning it in, Randy Orton, all we want to. But when he is on and when he appears to care... Or whatever the alien that's in his brain that like runs. Whoever <laughs> pulling realized, the levers in there. Yeah, Osmosis he, Jones. <laughs> yeah, he realized he had him on sleep mode and was like, sure. "Oh shit, we got to wake up Randy." Um, he's great. There's a reason why he is still doing this. When yeah. he's on, he's on. He's yes. On. Uh, I, I, two things. One, go check out Mike Quackenbush's uh, Ignite Philly speeches. They're really, really good. Very good. But I want to put over Paul Heyman's promo because oh, it so happened good. we didn't oh, talk about it. God. Oh my god! And he dropped tears. Go watch it. Here's a clip. This is not how I envisioned it ending. We always, since the beginning, we've always talked about riding off into the sunset together. The Universal Championship over one shoulder, the UFC title over the other, and me standing behind him, proclaiming to the world, the reigning defending. The man looked like he rubbed a live cat into his face. Yeah. It got like real swollen. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was amazing. He's allergic to dander. Uh, <laughs> he, no, he's allergic to sadness. Yeah. No, sadness. it was amazing. It was amazing. Um, Paul Heyman, one of the best ever. Absolutely. Uh, ever. Yeah. That does it for Tights and Fights. We are a podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. This week, our hosts were Danielle Radford and Mike Eagle, along with me, Hal Lublin. 
Thanks again to Mike Quackenbush for joining us. Check out all of his information in our show notes. Uh, I want to quickly plug a friend of the show and friend of mine and friend of yours, Adam Murray, who oh, is yeah. a uh, filmmaker. He is directing a wrestling short in L.A. on August 18th. That is a week from this Saturday. And he is looking for extras to be in the crowd for a match between Peter Avalon and Ray Rosas. It's going to be from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m., 4.30 at the latest. And WPW is going to follow the filming with a show. So it's going to be at the Burbank Moose Lodge. It has a bar. So if you're in the L.A. area and you are available, come support indie wrestling and indie filmmaking and our friend Adam. Is there a process for them to sign up or do they just show up? I think they just show up. I'll tell you what, uh, Adam, please uh, chime in on the show notes uh, in that thread on Facebook and let people know if they have to show up. And it will be uh, super, super fun. Adam is a great guy, and he deserves your support. And so do I. Follow me on Instagram, <laughs> where a Grandpa Hal just discovered stories, and he's struggling. <laughs> At Hal Loveland on Instagram. Please throw me a follow. Danielle? Um, so for me, um, just all the usuals, follow me on the Instagram, still trying to get them hot, fat lady clothes, screen junkies, still doing stuff there. Mm -hmm. Um, check out, if you have not checked it out yet, I was one of the contributing writers and a voice on the Max Fun Podcast Bubble. I had a blast creating it. It is literally the kind of show that I would have created had I done it first and not Jordan. Wait, did Max Fun put out a show called Bubble? Uh, Max Fun put out I a show called Bubble. I wasn't aware. <laughs> It's I've like, not heard the bubble. It, it's I, like you were in the bubble. Mike, what do you got coming up? I'm just doing a wrestling-themed rap show in Brooklyn oh, that's next all. Friday oh, around that's the SummerSlams. And I'll, and I'll be at the SummerSlams, and I'll be at uh, NXT TakeOver Brooklyn, and Ooh. I'm probably going to uh, Sam Roberts Live podcast and stuff, too. So if you're around doing wrestling Ooh. stuff in New York... Uh, next weekend, give me a holler. Come to my rap show. Our producer is the hunky art dog, Julian Burrell. Who even knows how much he's benching at this point? He, he, just imagine throughout the show he's doing push-ups outside of our One-handed push-ups. One hand, and then he switches to the other hand. And, and then does that thing that where he claps Just his toes. He hinges his, his calves. That's how strong they are. He can just sort of... Yeah, it's like that Michael Jackson, yeah. Andy, are you okay dance, except all the way yeah. to the ground. And no harness. He just does it with pure strength. Senior well, producer at Maximum Fun is Laura Swisher. Mike Eagle is the voice behind our theme music as well. We're putting him over for that. Keep up with us all week long at facebook.com slash group slash tights fights and at tights fights on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you love the show... Remember to hit those five stars on Apple Podcasts and share us with all your friends. Thank you so much to the Maximum Fund members who choose to have a portion of their recurring monthly contribution. Come to the show and keep the lights on when we're here in the studio. We cannot thank you enough. We are out for now, but we will be back next week with even more, you guessed it, wrestling. Wrestling. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.